Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance podcast on money, investing, the economy, and why they matter. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 18. It's titled, Which Investment Vehicles Should You Use? The inspiration or suggestion for this post came from Burke, who recently emailed me and wanted me to discuss exchange-traded funds, or ETFs. And I want to take him up on that suggestion, but not just talk about ETFs, but talk about all the ways that you can actually implement your investment strategies. Now... There are private investment vehicles and public investment vehicles. And, and by investment vehicle, I mean what is, what is the pool or, or wrapper or the method which you are accessing a particular asset type, be it stocks, be it bonds, be it real estate? Because there's really two decisions when you decide to, let's say, purchase large company stocks, let's say European large company stocks. One, you could buy individual stocks and go to a broker and and buy them one by one. Or you could invest in what's called a commingled vehicle or a pool where your investment is pooled with other investors and then there's a professional money manager that is selecting those securities. And that manager might be actively selecting them. In other words, trying to select specific stocks that will hopefully outperform a particular market benchmark. Or the manager might be trying to replicate a benchmark and purchasing hundreds of stocks that seek to replicate a specific segment of the market. That's called a passive strategy, and those are index funds. Now, there are both private Investment vehicles, which are limited partnerships, which we're not going to talk very much about. That's what you would use if you were going to invest in a hedge fund or a venture capital fund or a leveraged buyout fund. Those are private investment vehicles. We're going to focus on the ways that you can access investments through public vehicles. And there's really four main ones. There are the original public commingled fund, which are called closed-end funds. And there's not that many today. In the U.S., there's only about 575 closed-end funds or or really only about $2.5 billion in closed-end fund assets. Now, this was the original one. There used to be hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of these. And we'll see there's some flaws to closed-end funds, which is why they're not as popular. But there's also opportunities with closed-end funds. The other type of publicly traded investment vehicles are open-end mutual funds, which is the most common. In the U.S., there are 7,500 open-end mutual funds, about $12 trillion in assets. And so so this is really the most popular investment vehicle in the world. Now, an investment vehicle is becoming more popular. It's the one that 
Burke wanted me to discuss, and those are exchange-traded funds, or ETFs. In the U.S., it's about 1,500 ETFs with, with roughly $1.7 trillion in assets. And ETFs have only been around for about 20 years. The first one was issued in 1993. And then the fourth investment vehicle is, is, in, has an, is an even smaller niche. They're called exchange-traded notes, or ETNs. And some people think, well, these are like ETFs, but but not really. They're, they're very, very different. And we'll spend a few minutes talking about them and some of the, the challenges to ETNs. But first, let's talk about what is a closed-end fund. The original closed-end fund came out in the early 1800s in Europe. In the U.S., the, the original one was in 1893, and it was issued by the Boston Personal Property Trust was its name. Now, a closed-end fund is it's called closed because there's only a set number of shares. And, and this is something interesting. The way that we're going to distinguish these four types of publicly available investment vehicles are, are two ways. One, how are shares created? And two, how are shares priced? And how do those prices differ if they do, relative to the actual value of the securities in the investment vehicles. And that's an important thing to consider because what you pay for a share of an, a commingled fund, it might actually be at a premium to what the underlying assets are worth or it might be at a discount or it might be the same. And so that, those are the two ways we're going to distinguish how are shares created and how might the price differ from the underlying value of the securities. So let's focus on closed-end fund. Closed-end funds is a set number of shares, and the reason for that is shares are created through an initial public offering. A management company decides they want to launch a new closed-end fund, and they'll work through a financial advisory network or through brokers to build up interest in their offering. And there'll be a prospectus describing, all right, here's what the closed-end fund is. Here's how, what's what it's going to invest in. Here's what the fees are going to be. And they'll do an IPO. Now, the challenge with this is there's fees associated with an IPO. There's a commission, the broker, because they're out marketing or selling this, they want to earn that. And so you might pay $25 a share for an initial offering of a closed-end fund, but immediately, the value of the shares in terms of the underlying securities will drop. Now, the value of the securities is what's known as the net asset value, or NAV. And, and every type of commingled fund, be it an open-end mutual fund, closed-to-fund ETF, they all have what's known as a net asset value, or NAV. And it's, it's calculated by looking at, all right, here's the value of all the securities in the pool divided, the sum of them divided by the number of shares. And so what is the NAV or net asset value per share? So the closed-end fund, after the initial public offering, those fees are deducted. There's a commission there. And so immediately the, the fund could sell at a premium because you have what was offering price of $25. But after deducting the fee, the net asset value might be, let's say, $24.50. Now, here's the thing with closed-end funds. One, the fees are very, very high. So there's a, ma there's a professional management company that is managing the assets, and 
closed-end funds have traditionally had very, very high fees. Some, some are reasonable, under 1%, but many can be as high as 2 2.5%. And so that, that's really a competitive disadvantage to the, and like a, a, say an ETF, where the fees tend to be much, much more economical. The other thing that you need to know about closed-end funds because the number of shares are set, that gives the opportunity for the closed-end fund manager to use leverage. In other words, they'll go out and they'll borrow money from a bank or other entity, and they'll buy additional shares of whatever securities that the closed-end fund invests in, be it stocks or bonds or whatever. And so the closed-end fund... V- vehicles, they're, they're leveraged, which means if you use leverage, that's great if the market's going up because that will actually increase your return or magnify it. But if markets are falling off, it could actually worsen losses. And so closed-end funds are levered, their fees are high, and here's the other interesting thing about them. Because the number of shares are set, then the you always can cal- the the net asset value is calculated every day, but the price of the actual shares they trade throughout the day might vary greatly relative to the NAV. Can be very quite volatile, and so closed end funds can sell at a discount to net asset value, or they can sell at a premium. Now the there is a closed end fund called the Pimco Global Stocks Plus closed-end fund. Its ticker is PGP. It trades in the U.S. It is trading at an 81% premium to its net asset value. Now, why in the world would anyone pay 80% more for something? And Because the share price might be $10, but they're, they're paying upwards of $18. Huge premium. Conversely, there are closed-end funds selling at a discount. The REN Global Entrepreneurs Fund is, is at a 35% discount to the net asset value. And so there isn't any mechanism within closed-end funds or most closed-end funds to narrow that premium or discount. Here's where there's an opportunity. Closed-end funds tend to be very, very small. Many of them are just $100, $200, 300000000 million in assets because they'll do this initial public offering and then they, they won't issue any other shares. Sometimes they'll do a follow-up offering, but oftentimes they won't. So the number of shares is set. And most of the investors that are in or investing in closed-end funds are, are what are known as retail investors. They're not institutions. Because the fund sizes are so small, institutions can't really get invest in them. They can't get the liquidity because the number of of Shares that trade daily isn't very, very high. And so if an institution invests in closed-end funds, then it would take them days and days to, to actually get in, and it might take them weeks and weeks to get out. When I managed money, we looked at investing in closed-end funds, and, and we, weren't, we only managed a billion or two dollars, and we couldn't even get a small position, a 1%, 2% position. It would have taken, we could have bought it, but it would have taken us weeks to get in and weeks to get out. So they're very illiquid, which means they're very inefficient. If you have an asset class or a security that's selling at an 80% premium, then 
then the market's not working very efficiently there. And, and so that's where I invest in closed-end funds occasionally, and I do it with my eyes wide open. I recognize the fees are high. I recognize that they're volatile because there's leverage there. They're volatile because the price can vary greatly from the NAV or the net SRV, but I invest because I can get them at a discount. I can get securities on sale and and basically get, if it's at a 15% discount, I can get $100 worth of securities for $85. Now, when you invest in closed-end fund, it's not as simple as I'm just going to buy something at a discount. What The way that I do it is I want to see where there's panic, where, in other words, this the particular closed-end fund discount is has widened compared to his, its historical average. Understand why that's occurring, what's going on with the particular security type that the fund holds. I'll invest at a discount and wait for that discount to, to narrow. Now, not necessarily not get to where the price equals the net asset value, but just get back to its historical discount. So that's one way to invest in closed-end funds. It's the way I do it. But it is very, very risky because they can be so volatile. And most of the investors are, are retail individual investors who have a tendency to panic. And they also have a tendency to overpay the ones that are at a premium. So those are closed-end funds. There's only about... 570 closed-end funds in the U.S., $2.5 billion. So it's still a very, very small segment. Back in 1929, there were 700 closed-end funds, so the markets actually shrunk. But as a comparison, open-end mutual funds, which I'll describe in more detail in a few minutes, there was only 19 of them in 1929. Now there's over 7,500 open-end mutual funds, $12 trillion in assets. Why have closed-end funds shrunk in terms of the numbers, whereas open-end funds have not? Well, there's an advantage with an open-end mutual fund. One, its net asset value only always equals its price. In other words, you don't get these premiums and discounts. And that's because with a closed-end fund, the only way to issue more shares is to do an initial public offering. But with an open-end mutual fund... The new shares are created every day. You can't trade during the day like you can with a closed-end fund. But at the end of the day, the manager, the professional manager, looks at, all right, how, what are the buy orders that are going for fund flows into the open-end mutual fund? And what are the sell orders? They'll net them out, and then they'll just figure out, all right, do I need to create more shares or less shares? And the price of those shares are always the net asset value. So because open-end mutual funds don't trade during the day, they just trade at the end of the day one time, the NAV always equals the price. That's a huge advantage because you don't get the fluctuations, you don't get the volatility. They, they follow similar strategies, open-end mutual funds, there's closed-end funds, you can buy stocks, bonds, all different types, real estate, but they're just, they're just a better advantage and the fees are lower typically than closed-end funds. Now, there's both active open-end mutual funds and there's passive. The passive mutual funds can be, the index funds can be very, very cheap with fees as low as 0.06% or six basis points. And, and so those, those are open-end funds, a huge advantage. And that's why they've become 
so popular. Most retirement plans, if you have an individual retirement plan, let's say a 401k plan in the U.S., your options typically are open-end mutual funds. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. So for many decades, there was only two options if you were going to use a Cominga vehicle. There were open-end mutual funds and there were closed-end mutual funds. But in 1993, State Street came out with somewhat of a hybrid vehicle, which is an exchange-traded fund. And they were called Spiders, or Standard and Poor's Depository Receipts. And they issued State Street the first exchange-traded fund. An ETF is like a closed-end fund in that you can buy and sell shares throughout the day, but it's like an open-end mutual fund in that the discount and premiums tend to be very, very narrow. The discount and premiums of the price relative to the net asset value, and that's because of the way that shares are created. Again, for all, all these vehicles we're looking at, we're distinguishing them based on the number of shares, how shares are created, and how the price of the, an individual share in the fund varies relative to the net asset value. With ETFs, shares are issued by what they're called creation units. And so there are authorized participants who have the opportunity to to get shares created on their behalf. And here's how they do that. They will, let's say the ETF is like the original spider, 
invested in, they, they saw it, it was a passive vehicle because the original ETFs were passive vehicles. So it sought to replicate the return of U.S. large company stocks as measured by the S&P 500. So if I'm an authorized participant, I could go out and buy all the shares that are in the S&P 500, create in, the, in their proportional weights, create the basket, and then I could exchange that basket of security, transfer it to the sponsor of the ETF, and the ETF would issue me the a new shares, these creation units. And typically they're done in blocks of 25,000 to 250,000 shares. So they're, they're huge amounts. Now, why, why go through all that effort? Well, this is the mechanism that allows an ETF to have a very narrow premium or discount to NAV. Because let's say that the, there's so, so much demand for the ETF that, that it, it's selling at a 5% premium to the net asset value. Because the only way to create securities is through these creation units. So if I'm a, an authorized participant and I see that the ETF is selling at a 5% discount to the, the value of the securities that make up the S&P 500, if we're using the example of Spider, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to form my basket. I'm going to buy all these securities. I'm going to exchange them with the ETF provider. They're going to issue me shares. I'm then going to go sell those ETF shares in the open market and I'll net a profit. So there's an arbitrage opportunity, a risk-free arbitrage opportunity. And, and that's what keeps, it's these authorized participants that keeps the, this discount or premium to NAV very, very narrow. And, and that, that was a, a very ingenious solution. And, and the original ETFs were all passive. And the fees were very, very low, particularly compared to mutual funds. And they still are very, very low. Now, then the ETF sponsors got the idea of, all right, what about a more active approach, particularly on, not even an active, what about fixed income? Because stocks are pretty easy because stocks all trade in the open market. So it's very easy for these authorized market participants to create these baskets to trade with and uh, the sponsor of the ETF, get the new creation units, new shares, arbitrage it, then it's very, very discount. Bonds aren't the same way. Bonds don't trade on an exchange. Bonds trade through network of brokers. And so an ETF, and I, I've met with one of the largest ETF sponsors is iShares. And it's owned by BlackRock. And they're based out of their main offices. I think they're still in San Francisco. And I, I spent a fair amount of time, visited them a few times, trying to understand how these fixed income ETFs work. Because... Because fixed income or bonds don't trade on an exchange, if I'm an authorized market participant, and let's say the ETF replicates the, the Barclays Aggregate Bond Index, there are thousands and thousands of bonds that make up that benchmark and that the ETF holds. I'm not going to, as an authorized market participant, it's just inefficient for me to go out and purchase all of these bonds. I'm going to get a, I, the way it's done is a, a sample of bonds or just some bonds are bought and then the, the exchange or the creation unit takes place with the ETF. And so there's this ongoing negotiation between the ETF sponsor 
and the authorized market participants. As they try to formulate baskets that approximate what's in the ETF, but it doesn't match it exactly. And here's, here's a risk with, with these type of ETFs. If it's a particular narrow segment, such as non-investment grade bonds, which we talked about a few episodes in when we talked about our investors complacent, they're not very, very liquid. They're not liquid at all. And, and they're getting less liquid because dealers don't want to hold these illiquid bonds. So what happens when one of these high-yield bond ETFs is selling at a discount to its net asset value? Well, in the typical market, the authorized market participant would go out into the open market, buy the ETF that's selling at a discount, bring it to the ETF sponsor, and then be given a basket of securities that replicate what's in the fund. But since it's fixed income, they're only going to get a sample of them. They're not going to get every single security. And then that authorized participant is now holding the bonds that they really didn't want to hold to begin with and have to go out and try to sell them and make a profit and not lose money. And so when, when there is market duress, one of the fears with the, some of these bond ETFs, be it corporate bond ETFs, non-investment grade bond ETFs, is that in a period where there's fear that the authorized market participants will not step up to narrow the discount to NAV and, and that you're going to have some huge market dislocations. And, and for that very reason, I don't, I don't buy high-yield bond exchange-traded funds at all because there's, just, there's, there's this ongoing negotiation process between the authorized market participants and the sponsored ETFs. And when markets get rocky, uh, these things might not act very well. And it is definitely a risk out there because when markets are selling off, particularly bond markets, liquidity dries up because dealers don't want to hold bonds that are falling in value. And so there's just not the liquidity there. So those are ETFs. Generally speaking, they're, they're a, a nice complement to open and mutual funds. And, and some investors will, you know, the, the, the least risk way to, to implement an investment strategy is open and mutual funds. The next way, particularly for stock strategies, are exchange-traded funds. And then, but keeping in mind some of the risk with, with some of the fixed-income exchange-traded funds. The, the fourth option we've not discussed are called exchange-traded notes. And ETNs are very, very different because there, the fund sponsor uh, of the note you, isn't investing in underlying securities. It's actually a bond. All an ETN is is a fund sponsor has issued a bond or a fixed income instrument and promised to pay at the maturity of the bond a value that equals the performance of some underlying index. And so it, it's a, it, let's say the index is something that tracks commodities. And so there are bond ETNs. And, and, and so instead of the fund company buying the, the underlying commodities like they would with an open-end mutual fund or ETF, the ETN all they're saying is a promise. It's a promise to deliver a certain return at a certain time. And some of these ETNs will do distributions. They'll, they'll pay out, quote-unquote, dividends. But the dividends is really just interest payments tied, again, to the performance of whatever asset type the ETN is tied to. And so when you buy an ETN, because it's just like any other bond, 
There is no underlying assets there. It's just a promise to pay by the ETN provider. And so the thing to keep in mind is how risky is the provider. It's really a credit analysis problem. And and what's so interesting about these, well, first of all, why would anyone do this? The only reason really to issue an ETN is for tax purposes. They can be more tax efficient for investors, particularly for something like commodities or currencies. And so that's the reason. Most ETNs, and there's not really that many, there's, there's really, how many are? There's only about 150 ETNs, so very, very small market. Most of them are invested in what are called Master Limited Partnerships, or MLPs. And Master Limited Partnerships are, are energy infrastructure investments. I won't have time today to discuss what they are. But registered investment companies can only hold 25% within an open-end mutual fund invested in MLPs, same with an ETF. And so these ETNs are tied to they're able to do it because they're not really holding the MLPs. They're holding it's just a debt instrument. Now, I invested in an ETN prior to 2008 and because I wanted to get access to the MLPs, and this was a way to do it. But this ETN was sponsored by Bear Stearns. And if you recall, in 2008, Bear Stearns went bankrupt. And so I got out of that ETN before Bear Stearns went bankrupt. But I had friends, I had partners that were still invested. Now, if markets were efficient, when Bear Stearns went bankrupt, because they're the sponsor of the ETN, these are unsecured bonds, the, the ETN should have fallen in value, even though it was supposedly tracking an MLP index. It was really a debt instrument, and the sponsor of the debt instrument went bankrupt. But it didn't. It, it continued to trade normal, even though the sponsor had gone bankrupt. And eventually, J.P. Morgan took over that particular ETN. But I, I, generally speaking, I don't recommend investing in ETN, mainly because the strategies are very niche-oriented. Perhaps if you want to get invested in, in Master Limited Partnerships, you might consider it. The other way to do Master Limited Partnership is with closed-end funds, but that would really be the only exception to it. In summary, which investment vehicle should you use to implement your investment strategies? Most individual investors for stock investing should focus on open-end mutual funds and exchange-traded funds. For fixed-income investing, I would utilize open-end mutual funds only. There's some risk for some of the more niche-oriented strategies in using ETFs such as high-yield bonds, some investment-grade corporate bonds, and marketing markets bonds. Most individual investors should not really be utilizing ETNs, exchange-traded notes, or closed-end funds. Closed-end funds, I only use them for very opportunistic investing. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my Insider's Guide, where I will email you the show notes, give you a preview of future episodes, and also that's where I make special announcements only to that email list. If you have suggestions for future podcasts, you can email me at jd at jdavidstein.com or contact me via Twitter at jdstein. I have a bonus episode I want to share with you. I was recently a guest on Listen Money Matters, where I helped Matt Andrew kick off a new series they're doing called Economics 101. We talked about sunk cost and investing. You can find that under episode 142 
at listenmoneymatters.com. Wanted to share a quick review with you. This is from chess.com. He says, must listen to financial podcasts. Very insightful and informative. Thanks, chess.com fan. Anyone else, please leave a review at your convenience. It's always helpful to get that feedback and helps others discover the podcast. Just a reminder, everything I've shared with you on Money for the Rest of Us is for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. I simply am providing general education on money, investing, and the economy. Next time, episode 19.